Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us today as we worship and fellowship together. To find out more about Waterbrook, go to www.waterbrook.church. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I'm going to ask you as we start out here to turn back to Paul's letter to the Colossians. We're about a third of the way through the second chapter, starting at verse 6 today. It's been a few months since I've gone through this. So as we come to the section today, like I said earlier in the, in the introduction or in the greeting, I want to admit that this is one of the harder sermons I've ever had to prepare for. And I think I say that probably every time, or at least I think it every time. This letter, as we've discussed previously in previous sermons, is very, very rich theologically. And it's one of Paul's most theologically rich letters, and it's easy to get tripped up in the weight of the language that he's using here, such that we miss the melodic line of the letter. It's important to remember, as we set out here today, that Paul wasn't writing to a people in hopes of penning some theological treatise or some, some grand discourse, right? He was writing, he was a pastor who was writing to a church. He was writing to people, a congregation which he had never met, but that he learned through Epaphras, a disciple of Paul who had established the church, was being lured into a variety of beliefs and rituals which undercut the basic message of the gospel, Christ's sufficiency and his supremacy. Given that, I think it's really interesting that Paul, imprisoned in Rome and writing a letter to remind the people of the fundamentals of the faith, wrote one of the New Testament's most eloquent, forceful, and moving affirmations of Christ's identity and authority to a church which was stumbling over the basics, such as Christ alone. Now, I know that I needed to hear this message this week because in the course of my preparation and my study, I became really frustrated. I was frustrated over the fact that, I don't know if you guys have been paying attention, but I've been preaching this book since 2017, right? We're moving kind of slow. Um, and I've been saying essentially the same thing for two years now. It felt like every time I came to the text I was supposed to study, I arrived at the same basic message of Christ's supremacy, his sufficiency, his grace. And after two years, I wanted something fresh. I was, I was really disappointed. I, I almost expected to find in the midst of this letter, right, an occasion where Paul, in the midst of preaching Christ's glory, essentially like interrupts himself and as an aside, starts talking about something that's completely unrelated to the first, you know, 800 words of the letter. Preachers have to be careful when dividing the word for the church, right? We don't want to take on too much. We don't want to take too big of a bite, which is hard not to do in this letter. We don't want to overload people or ourselves with a million different themes and applications to deliver in the course of a message. We have to have one dominant truth that this message is supposed to, is supposed to preach. It just seems like I've been preaching the same dominant message over and over and over again. This is now the ninth sermon, and I'm saying the same thing. And when I looked at this text, as, as the ladies read it, this is full of different stuff. This has got grace, it's got baptism, it's got fullness of deity, it's got writings against heresy, circumcision of the heart, freedom from accusations of the law, defeat of our accusers, triumph of the cross. I'm like, whoa, there's a lot of stuff in here. What am I going to preach on? And this is one of those texts where if I were Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, I'd preach these nine verses over the course of nine months. I'm not. David Martin Lloyd-Jones. I'm well aware of that. So I thought maybe 
Unless I want to break this into five or six sermons, which I don't want to do, I should find some unifying thought or some grand theme that dominates all of this stuff here, and wouldn't you know it if I didn't arrive back at Christ's supremacy? It's almost as if Paul really wants us to understand this. It's almost as if he wants the church to have, I don't know, the full riches of complete understanding of the glory of God, namely Christ, right? As Alistair Begg says, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. So forgive me as I go through this today, if it seems elementary, if it seems rudimentary or simple, but, you know, preachers are supposed to preach their message first to themselves, and apparently I needed to hear this over the past couple weeks. So we read the text today. The ladies read the text. I'm going to go through it again quick. Chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. So then just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were raised with Him through your faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, He has taken it all away, nailing it to the cross, and then, having disarmed the powers and authorities, He made public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Father God, um, nobody came here today to hear the ramblings of a man, Father, but to hear the voice of God awakening our hearts. As Bruce said, You already know what's going to be said, Lord, and anything that happens here is going to be the result of your working, God. I pray today that you would show us something of Christ, Father. I pray that the Holy Spirit would attend to the needs of our souls today, Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And I I bring this all up, and I'm being real with you about my struggles, because this is what I stumbled over as I prepared. I don't think... I'm going to tell you anything new today, if that's a comfort to you, unless you've never heard the gospel, in which case I hope you hear something new. Um, But for those of us in the faith, the message that we need to hear day in and day out is the message that Christ is risen and reigning. Sometimes people get bored of church. They get bored of hearing the same thing over and over again. They think that When they come to church every week, they need something new, some new application, some new truth, something that takes the gospel they heard last week and makes it even better, right? What is it that you aren't telling me, pastor? They say, how do I unlock this? What else do I need? I don't need to come to the first three weeks of Pastor Dibley's study on Genesis. 
I've read Genesis 1 through 3 a million times. I've been studying it since Sunday school. I can probably recite it for you, if not verbatim, at least to a pretty good degree of accuracy. I need something new. I need something fresh. I need something novel. I need something innovative, something less rudimentary, something secret, something hidden, something mysterious. You know, not John 3.16. Everybody knows that. We begin to think, we begin to feel, or we begin to fear that the gospel isn't enough, that Christ isn't enough, that our righteousness and the implications of the cross are reliant on our pursuit and diligence and not on God's revelation to us. And that is exactly what was happening to the church in Colossae. And by the attendance of the Holy Spirit, this text is included in Scripture because it can happen to us too. This is what happened to me two weeks ago. Not that I was chasing angels, not that I was starving myself like the Colossians, but I didn't approach things from the standpoint of a redeemed sinner, but that of a ruined sinner. When I read this text and I thought about what I was going to preach, here's some of the things that came to mind. I can't do this. This is beyond me. I am not suited for this. I'm not smart enough. People aren't going to learn anything from me. I don't know enough. I don't study enough. I'm not reverent enough. I can't teach anyone. I just don't get it. I'm not enough. I'm never going to be. Friends, this is maybe 20% of what I had written on my paper. And beyond being able to pour these things out through my fingertips, I was otherwise paralyzed. If there's one thing that I was assured of, it was my abject insufficiency for taking the Word of God and preparing or delivering it so that you would be edified and God would be glorified. To be clear, and perhaps I'm oversharing a little here, this isn't any kind of cry for sympathy. I want you to get that. I don't want to make this sermon about me. That was the problem in the first place. I was making everything about me. When you look at this list, do you notice anything strikingly absent from my thought process? Yeah. Where's Jesus? It's not about me, right? I'm the problem. And as the church in Colossae became convinced of these lies, or the lies introduced by the Jewish leaders and the surrounding cultural influences, they took their eyes off Christ, just like I did. They focused on what they could or couldn't do instead of what God had already done. So from this, this text, this heavy, heavy text, overflowing with theological landmines, any one of which should blow us off our feet, concepts which should challenge our comfortable Christianity, elevate our opinion of Christ, knock us down in our pridefulness, cause us to view the powers, the forces, the rulers, the authorities of this world through a different lens, I'm going to try to pull three simple, really simple truths out of it. They're going to be basic, they're going to be elementary, but I believe they're foundational to our ability to walk out our faith in a world that barrages us with much different messages. So here's where I want to start. Number one, God is God. I'm going to try to keep this really simple, guys. This is as simple as I could get this one. This is the first and the most important. 
This is the drum which Paul continues to beat throughout the course of this letter. It's interesting, at this point in the letter, don't you think, that Paul hasn't really touched yet on the issue that he's writing to address? It's almost like the heresy that has been reported to the church isn't the actual issue. Like, if they made the main thing the main thing, this other stuff wouldn't be an issue. We'll see probably in the next sermon, if there is one, that Paul recognizes that their behavior isn't what needs to change. It's their view of God. In the beginning of chapter 2, Paul told them the purpose behind their letter, and I love that. It's nice when a pastor tells you what his purpose is, right? The letter, his prayers for them, his daily struggle on their behalf, it wasn't simply so that they wouldn't be deceived by fine-sounding arguments, but so that they would have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they would know the mystery of God, namely Christ. That was his first objective. If that understanding had been in place, none of this other stuff would be an issue. And as my wife was counseling me patiently, Through these last few weeks, she rightly pointed out to me that my problem is not me, it's a problem of worship. That simply convincing myself that those things that I wrote about myself were wrong, it wouldn't be an appropriate solution to my issues and my insecurities because that would just be me justifying myself to me. And what's the value in that? If you look, Colossians is divided up into four chapters, right? And Paul doesn't start addressing the issue to the church until about the end of chapter 2, and he finishes his rectification about halfway through chapter 3. That's about maybe 25% of the letter, 450 words. The rest of the letter is devoted to salutation and exaltation. There's power in that. What did Pastor Dibley say last week about sharing your faith? He said, don't get tripped up on what you're going to say, how you're going to grab people's attention, how you're going to interest them. Just start exalting Christ. You see that in this text. Paul's coming out with both barrels before he's actually turning to the issue of the church. He's going on record one more time as to the supreme goodness, power, glory, and grace of Christ. He's been doing it this whole letter. Remember, the letter was written to address a heresy, a heresy. I don't think I would have had the patience that Paul does. I don't think I would have done all that. How would you have written the letter? Paul, an apostle to the church in Colossae, babes in Christ. Knock it off. You're doing it wrong. (laughs) So I want to hold out this as a model for us, okay? And I think this will become clear as we progress through the text, but the effect of Paul starting out his message like this is that he gets their eyes off whatever might be occupying their hopes or their concerns, and he sets them on Jesus. He wants their first and most dominant concern to be the glory of the Lord shown in Christ. Before he starts addressing the issue, he lays it out there. He hammers it home one more time with the stomp of his foot saying, do you understand how great God is? As you're looking for God, are you looking high enough? Have you ever taken a photo of something with your phone or your, your digital camera. Maybe it's outside. It could take a picture over here. It's in a well-lit place. And the logic on your phone kind of hijacks, right, the, the, the brightness. It keeps white balancing itself or brightness balancing it to whatever the brightest part in the picture is, right? Like a window or a chandelier or something like that. And the camera just kind of like 
you know, recalibrates itself. What happens to everything else when that happens? It gets dark, it fades, it dims. And, and, and I'm not saying that these concerns that Paul is addressing here aren't important or that we should ignore them, but if we calibrate our souls on Christ as the most exalted, the brightest, the most luminous and important concern in our life, it, it puts other stuff into perspective. And that's what I see here. I see Paul setting Christ as the dominant focus in the lives of their believers so all of their thoughts, their actions, their desires, they're appropriately framed in light of the glory of Christ. I see Paul writing a letter. This is a letter written from a person who's blinded to everything else because he's been staring at the sun. I mean, consider in verse 10. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. Like the song that Arya just sang, is this phrase, all the fullness of the deity, is this a throwaway phrase? Is this, is this a cheap or a meaningless expression? If there was no gravity behind the implications, could we expect it to strengthen us? Would it cause us to be thankful? We have, and, and this is a really important statement all the fullness of the deity in Christ. We don't have someone who is just like God in Christ. We don't have someone who can stand in in a pinch and speak for God to the best of his ability, recognizing that there may be some aspects of God which he can't quite convey to us. If that were the case, Paul would have said, in Christ, we have an uncanny representation of God. But that's not what he said. He used the word fullness in the sense of completeness, as in, there is nothing in Christ that is not deity. All this language, particularly in this first section here, refers either explicitly or implicitly to Christ's supremacy. Look back again. Look at verse 6. What, for instance, is implied by the statement, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord? Let me ask, how did the Colossians receive Christ Jesus as Lord? By faith given to them according to the will of God. How did we receive Christ Jesus as Lord? Just gave you the answer. By faith, given us according to the will of God. Don't think for a moment that I came to my faith of my own accord. That was all by God's grace and persistence. And if you think that I'm keeping my faith by a sheer act of my own will, left to myself, I probably would have abandoned even my own will and gone chasing after other things. And that's what Paul is saying at the beginning of this section. In fact, it's what he says in the beginning of the letter, that Paul is an apostle, that he has saving faith by the grace of God. Remember, Christ is both the start and the finish of our faith. He wasn't looking for faith. Remember, what was Paul trying to do? Paul, on the road to Damascus, he was going there to persecute, to stomp out the faith. He wanted to get rid of it. And when you read the litany of experience that Paul had throughout the course of his life after his conversion, at some point, a man who's doing everything in his own strength would have thrown in the towel and gone home. 
Looking back at chapter 1 reminds us that everything for which Paul is commending them, their love, their patience, their strength, their endurance, it's all a result of God's initiative and God's prerogative. At no point does Paul say that he asks God to bring them to an awareness of the truth that he just knows that they have deep down inside if they just look a little harder. He doesn't applaud them for intellectualizing their way through the difficult matters of their beliefs and coming to irrefutable arguments for the obvious supremacy of their deductions. And he's not congratulating them for checking all of the boxes, surviving the initiation rites, and learning the secret handshake of the faith. There isn't one, by the way, that at least not one that anyone's taught me. Paul's own opening greeting in this letter doesn't say, Saul of Tarsus, an apostle of Christ through privileges conferred upon him by God and the regents of the University of Tarsus, according to his satisfaction of the requirements in his demonstration of exemplary theological scholarship and excellence in saving works. It doesn't say that. What does it say? It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ by the will of God. Paul starts off his letter by reminding them that he is where he is because God wanted him to be there. And the paragraph that we're reading today continues the sentiment. So then, just as you received Christ, continue to live your lives in Him. That reality alone of that statement should dispel any notions of spiritual pride that we may be, we may be harboring. Spurgeon notes, it is not said, as ye have fought for Jesus and won Him, or even studied the truth and discovered Christ Jesus, but as ye have received Him. This strips us of everything like boasting, for all we do is receive. This is a paradigm shift. I struggled a lot over the last few weeks, and I don't know if the believers in Colossae were thinking the same things that I was, but I can tell you the one thing they were falling for is the belief that Christ was neither sufficient nor supreme. Have we been paying attention in the study of Genesis? Have we been convinced since our days in Sunday school, if we had them, that God does it all? In Christ, Paul says, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, the deity who made the world, the one who breathed life into our lungs, the one who initiated a plan to save man before man even fell, that deity, he's the one who came in the flesh to acquaint himself with our sorrows, bear the weight of our sin, drink our cup of wrath, dry our death, and secure our place in heaven. That deity. Do we need more than that deity? God is God. It's a simple truth. So simple that sometimes we forget it. Moving on. I hope we're good with that one. Is that one okay? Because the other ones are kind of underpinned by that one. Number one, God is God. Number two, I am not. Confession time. Is this one of the struggles that we tend to have a problem with? Is this the problem that sits at the root of our struggles? Spoiler alert to those coming to hear Kevin's study of Genesis 3 next week. But isn't this what the serpent in the garden tried to convince Adam and Eve that they could be? They could be what? Like God. And I think it's funny. It's curious. Um, Does anybody remember which tree the serpent tempted them with, right? Because there were two in the garden. There was the tree of life and tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yeah, yeah. Which one did Satan tell them would make them like God? 
the one that would give them immortality or the one that would give them the power to judge? The power to judge, right? Man is finite, okay? Even if he ate from the tree of life, he still wouldn't be like God. He'd live forever, but he wouldn't have had lived forever. Even if he, in his immortality, he had no ending point, he still had a starting point. Even if he never died, he isn't eternal. He still wouldn't be self-existent. No, the lie that Satan wants us to believe is that we can be like God in that we can decide right and wrong. It's not that God doesn't want us to be able to determine right from wrong, but if God is God and we are not, it's His definition of right and wrong that matter. Satan, however, would have us believe that truth is subjective and that our responses to a self-defined morality are totally legitimate. Social media, for instance, very difficult to navigate in this respect. Tweets, posts, snaps abound, communicating in a well-intentioned manner that the only opinion that matters about you is yours. Well, if that's the case, what if I can't just pick myself up by my bootstraps and convince myself of how ridiculously awesome I am? What if I try and I try and I try and I rack my brains, but I can't think of a single redeeming quality about myself? What if I have depression? What if I'm legitimately chemically unable to have a positive opinion about myself, what then? If my opinion is the only one that matters, and I don't even feel myself deserving of the air I breathe, let alone my value to society or my worthiness of heaven, why on earth would I consider myself qualified or sound enough to adjudicate my own worth? Isn't there somebody else more qualified? I mean, a statement like, the only opinion about you that matters is yours, I'm not emboldened or encouraged. I look at that and I think, well, shoot. <laughs> and that's probably just because I have a very low self-esteem, low opinion of myself. There are others for whom it would seem the pendulum has swung the other way. And they consider themselves aptly qualified to judge not just themselves, but others, including God, because as far as they know, they're pretty awesome. And this is according to a self-defined set of metrics, standards, and practices, and behaviors that they can hold themselves and hold others to in order to justify the legitimacy of their self-righteous judgments. What did Solomon tell us in Ecclesiastes? I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge, and then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. The guy who had it all, the guy who knew it all, the guy who did it all, any measuring stick he set up for himself, he could measure up to. Treasures, pleasures, wisdom, conquest, it was all chasing the wind. What do you get if you chase the wind? What happens when you catch it? What do you get? The wind. Yeah. What good is that? That leaves us empty. But we find that when we chase it, we find ourselves chasing our own insatiable desire for more. It's never enough. We can make good things become servants of or means to our own self-aggrandizement, but that will end in ruins. It will fail us or we will fail it. There are two kinds of people in this world, Alistair Begg says. People who put their head on the pillow at night, either wondering if they're enough or knowing that they're not. He's the great encourager. <laughs> <laughs> the, 
This is the futility of trying to be God, right? In Tim Keller's book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, he laments, we try to judge ourselves sufficient by setting our own standards, but then we eventually despair because we can't keep them. And, and then we can't just lower them because then we're disappointed in ourselves for being the kind of people who have low standards. <laughs> Do you see why we need, to put, we need to realize that God is God and that we are not? Why it's a bad idea to put Andy in charge of Andy? Right? Notice that I didn't say let God be God, but realize that God is God. We don't have to let God do anything. He's just going to do it. He doesn't need my permission. I'm not qualified to judge myself, let alone judge God. Consider the end of Ecclesiastes, and the teacher writes, Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. You know, God's not going to consider whether I let it happen or not. We are powerless. Powerless. And this is a fact, if we recognize that God is God and God is good, that I'm thankful for. Consider the passage in Colossians 2. He says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. Paul uses the same language here that he used in his letter to the Ephesians. In Ephesians 2, he says, As for you, you were dead in your sins and your transgressions in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. This is as before. This is not a pithy, a superfluous, or a powerless text. What statement is he making here? What did he say that we were? Dead. We were dead. That's not a little thing. Anybody here been dead? I know there's a few of us, right? Let me ask you, friend, regardless of how capable or disciplined or determined you think you were in terms of your physical fitness, how much of a benefit was it to have you in your corner when you were dead? Regardless of the standard of fitness that we establish for ourselves, and I know of two people in this church who have suffered sudden cardiac death, both of whom, I'll just admit, have vastly differing standards of physical fitness. (laughs) When you are dead, it does you no good to hold on to your right to self-declare your vitality. You're dead. Thank God for God. Thank God that God is more steadfast in his pursuit of our salvation than we are. Thank God that God was alive when we were dead, that God once again breathes life into our souls. We need God to be God. We are way too fickle and faint-hearted and in any other way completely unfit to be God. All right? I'm going to move on. Working through these verses here. Like I said, this was difficult. I had read, reread, studied, written, diagrammed, prayed, outlined these verses to death. I struggled with the underlining message. A couple weeks ago, a week ago, I was driving home and I said, okay, back up. What's the big message here? Small words, Andy, small words. Number one, God is God. Number two, I am not. Number three, neither are they. All that stuff that we just came to terms with about ourselves, we have to understand that nobody else is any more qualified to judge us than we are to judge ourselves. 
Within the context of this letter, Paul is writing against a movement in the church which professed a, quote, superior and right knowledge of God, an intellectualized knowledge, which would eventually come to be known as Gnosticism. They believed that through various works and pursuits, their faith would prove more efficacious than simply believe ye on the Lord Jesus and be saved. This is a special knowledge, they'd say, especially revealed to us. If you don't know God the way we know God, then you don't know God. And if you don't know God, then God doesn't know you. And if God doesn't know you, then you stand condemned. You're without hope. Again, they're taking their eyes off Christ. There are those out here, out there, who profess a special holiness, a unique take on salvation. And the cult's are notorious for this. They add to the faith. They subtract from Christ's efficiency. They promise a more certain way to arrive at Christ. But that's the problem, arriving at Christ. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, be wary of those philosophies which promise to bring us to Christ. Christ isn't just the end, he says. Christ is the beginning. If it doesn't start with Christ and end with Christ, it isn't Christianity. And that's why Paul is trying to get their attention back on Christ. There was the law, God's law, the only law that mattered, which stood against us and condemned us. It was the law that Christ took and nailed to the cross. The accusations, the guilt, the judgment, both from without and from within, that's what needed to be dealt with. Whatever it was these guys were postulating, it was rubbish. It's nothing compared to the law that God himself established. God's law is the only standard that has any weight, any merit, any authority. It's the only one we need to concern ourselves with, not with ours and certainly not with theirs. That's why Paul says to the Corinthians, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Keller says again, I don't care what you think, Paul says. I don't care what I think. I have a very low opinion of your opinion of me. I have a very low opinion of my opinion of me. What you think, what I think, what does any of that matter? It's all going to prove impotent in the judgment of God. And the finished work of Christ is what Paul wants them to remember. It's not enough that God is God, and that we come to acknowledge his exclusive right to exercise judgment, but we see in the suffering of Christ the end of God's perfect plan and the salvation of those who trust in him. Robert Murray McShane says, God is not just a surgeon who tears off your bandages and opens our wounds to their deepest recesses and then leaves us with our sores not closed, neither bound up nor mollified with ointment. The Holy Spirit... The Comforter awakens us to the dreadfulness of our sins and then, as we desperately scramble for hope and the possibility of righteousness, casts light upon the risen Savior saying, look there. We can't be afraid to submit to the judgment of God. Indeed, it's the only thing that's going to save us from judgment, both the eternal, eternal judgment but also this unwinnable rat race of comparison and doubt and pride and self-loathing. It's not just that Christ purchased our salvation as if that's a small thing, but he broke the bonds 
which constrained us to the powers of this world. He released the stranglehold that sin has on our souls. He freed us from the smothering, from the condemning, from the joy-robbing effect of our guilt and our shame. Do you know what I think the pinnacle of pride is? When it comes to our tendency to measure ourselves against whatever spiritual standard we have applied to ourselves, do we really think that we could possibly have a higher standard of righteousness than God's? I mean, play this dialogue out with me. God looks at his perfect law. He takes all of the accusations stacked up against us. He evaluates their legitimacy. He determines they are indeed founded, but then he evaluates our guilt in light of the cross. He, the just, the reigning judge, declares that the penalty has been satisfied, the punishment has been fulfilled, our freedom from further judgment has been granted. God looks upon us and says, you are free and clear to exit the courtroom, a free man. Uh, Your Honor, may I approach the bench? Of course, God says, you, in your new standing before the court, have unlimited, have unfettered access to the king, to the supreme judge. Approach with confidence. Receive the mercy and the grace that is yours in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4.16. Right. Um, Your Honor, about your verdict, are you, are you sure about it? Absolutely. God says, when Jesus offered for one time, one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And by that one sacrifice, he made perfect forever those who are being made holy, Hebrews 10, 12. Okay. Okay. You know, but some of this stuff, you know, (laughs) you're you're just going to let this go? Well, I didn't say I was letting it go, says God. I said it's been fulfilled. My righteousness has been satisfied. If you would care to read my ruling, you would see that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. Yeah, but uh, no buts, God says. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. That's what baptism represents. The death of your old self and your enslavement to the law and rebirth to righteousness in a new life. You're a new creation. You're a new man. The punishments due to the old man, those have been poured out on the back and the brow of my son. If you are in him, you died with him. And now, having canceled the law of sin and death, you have been raised with him in righteousness. Romans 8.2. Yeah, but I'm still me. Yeah, God says. And that's a good thing because you're the one he died to save. 1 Timothy 1.15. Yeah, but I mean... I'm still the guy with the rap sheet, right? I'm the guy who did those things. I thought those thoughts. I spoke those words. I mocked your power. I ridiculed your mercy. I taunted your children. I exploited your creation. I should suffer for it. Christ himself bore our sins on his bo- in his body on the cross so that you would die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds... You have been healed, 1 Peter 2.24. Yep. Did you read the whole thing? Yeah. I know the end from the beginning, and I see everything in between. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, Revelations 22.13. Yeah. What about, what about that one? 
Did you look at that one? Did you look at that one? That one's? <laughs> I mean, you probably want to look at that one, God. Yep. Nothing in creation is hidden from my sight, God says. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before my eyes. Hebrews 4.13. Yeah, but that one, that one's pretty bad. <sighs> Where sins have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Hebrews 10.18. Okay. Okay, actually, actually, you know what? You know, I'm just, I'm just going to hold on to this one for now. Um, I, I, I think this one might be a little more than you bargained for, God. <laughs> you think Christ's sacrifice wasn't enough? Well, no, no, I mean, it's not that. I mean, this one's heavy. Um, I'm not sure that this one deserves grace. If you deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. Right? Uh-huh. Touche. Anyhow, um, you know, thanks for all this. You know, I'm going to take this one, and I'm going to let it fester for a bit. I'm going to see if maybe there's, there's some other way I can get this one off my back. You know, in the meantime, I'm just, I'm just going to hold on to it, um, this, this guilt or this fear or this failing or this inadequacy or this shame, what, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. I guess, I guess I just don't believe that this court has enough authority or a high enough standard of justice or righteousness to deal with all of this, you know? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go find a different one. I'm going to go find a different court. Maybe, you know, the court of public opinion or the court of social media or I don't, I, I don't know. And maybe I should, I should establish my own court and I should find someone else to validate me or condemn me. I don't know. I'll establish my own court. That's what I'll do. One that's higher than God's. Do we see the absurdity in this? It's a good thing that God has a standard that we can't measure up to. And it's a wonderful thing that we have a Savior who does. God is God. I am not. Neither are they. Look to Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God for being God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for being who you are and for not condemning me for who I am, God. Thank you for looking upon me with, the, with mercy for who Christ is. God, would you show us as we get distracted, would you show us that there's only room for one God and that it had better not be us, Lord? Give us something of the peace that comes from the knowledge that you are risen and reigning, Lord. We don't have to. Help us live with expectancy, God. You are going to do what you say you're going to do because you have done what you said you were going to do, God. Thank you for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to find out more about Waterbrook Christian Church located in Victoria, Minnesota, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed day.